field. I'm on Game Changers. It's going to be a lot of fun. Vicky's a lot of fun, and I know her man really well. <laughs> All right, wait. I'm still trying to manage this. Here we go. Hang on. Hang on. Okay, wait. Okay, keep talking, Tim. You're a pro. Hi, it's Tim Busfield. I'm on Game Changers. Game Changers. You got to watch. You got to listen. I'm with Vicky. Vicky's fantastic. You all know that. Okay, I'm I'm back now. You know, what happens is Facebook does this weird thing. So we're not even going to talk about it because it didn't happen because you saved me, Tim. Did I? And, and you are live from a, a, mot a hotel in Newark, New Jersey. Is that so? Yeah, if anybody wants to roll on by, uh, I'm here. I'm with my my Hall of Fame wife over there, Melissa Gilbert, Hi, who's Melissa. writing. She's, she's performing a uh, the ceremony, a wedding ceremony <gasps> for two of our friends in Florida tomorrow. So wow. we stopped at a hotel since we're on a seven o'clock flight. We are New York based. We have a house in the Catskills and we have an apartment on the Upper West Side. And that's right, where we, we have live. to talk about both of these things before we go further. Um, the Catskills, um, I, I think I mentioned to you, I spent every summer of my life in the Catskills, um, in Lock Sheldrake and South Fallsburg. Where are you guys in, in the Catskills? Oh, the light. The so close. Light. We, okay. Where? Yeah, we are. She's you don't tell well, me this town. light's really hot. I'm not sure what no, I can that do about light that. Is, that light is okay. The one behind you was not good. So that's good that you killed yeah. that one. This um, one. No, that's too dark. Uh, uh, we are... Uh, not far from South Fallsburg, you go up that same route, you would go towards Binghamton, okay. right? You would get yeah. up 17 towards yeah. Binghamton. But I love with 17. Us, yeah. You can get off in Monticello or Fallsburg. Yes. Oh, that's great, honey. Thank you. Look at my wife gaffing okay. the shot. She put, <laughs> I'm trying she to. Put her, she is putting stuff on there. That's going to have that light on fire. How, wow. Can you come do mine, Melissa? Jesus. She's a pro. Excellent. That's excellent. Melissa, <laughs> Melissa Gilbert, everybody. And uh, I want everybody to know Melissa's next. I already told her that she's not getting off with that. Okay. So so wow. you're up off Route 17. Old 17 or new 17? Well, uh, if you were to go, you know where Bethel Woods is, if you were up there where Woodstock was. I absolutely that, If you go 84 off yeah. of 17, Granton, you get to Port Jervis, which the Delaware River runs right through there. It's a beautiful river. And yes. the Poconos are on the south side of the river and the Catskills are on the north side. And we're 10 minutes from that spot. So Okay, so what got, yeah. what got you? You're in Michigan. Um, right. You grew up in, in, Calif in Southern California. What got you to upstate New York? Well, first of all, I was directing a pilot for a show called The Fosters, which is an ABC family show. And I was in yes. L.A. Mm -hmm. and Melissa, uh, I, I we met and we fell in love. And I said, the good news is I'm totally in love with you. The bad news is I live in Michigan. <laughs> and she said, get me out of here. Uh, I, and so she okay, now moved wait, roll, to Michigan. Roll back. How did yeah. you guys meet? Well, we first met, I pitched her a movie with a friend of mine, John McNamara, mm -hmm. in the probably early 90s, late 80s. But she wasn't interested in either the project or me at the time. <laughs> she, she doesn't remember it. Wait, uh, what, what year What year approximately are we talking about? 89, maybe, 88, okay. 89. A movie of the week, 30-something was going. My friend John went on to write many series and run many series. Great writer. Um, 
Uh, and uh, then we met again at the Emmy Awards. She was about to present, I think, and I had just was making my rounds backstage after picking up a prize. And yes, we met there. And then now, we, come on, she, I, had to be a, she had to be a little into you then because you're picking up a prize. You're looking pretty good when you're picking up the prize, no? Well, I was, she was, she's ridiculously beautiful always. And I was the best I've probably ever looked with a tuxedo on, right? So <laughs> I need to dress up like that. Uh, so then we didn't run into each other. And, and on the Fosters, I'd rented a little house uh, above, over by Universal across in the hills across uh, in the valley there, Hollywood Hills-ish area. Uh -huh. And there was a little bar that opened at eight, but nobody came into until about 10. And then it turned into <laughs> one of those kind of places. And I never, if there were people in there, it was crowded, I wouldn't go in. And I would get a slice of pizza or meatballs or whatever at the place next door. And they let, they turn on sports for me. And then when people started to come, I would go back up to the house. And I had been probably about eight months since I'd been on a date even. And I was just, I was so comfortable in bed and, and spooning with a pillow and getting a sheet just right. And I was really kind of happy and everything in my life was in a nice moderation and I wasn't in self-destructive binges or anything. And I walked, I looked, I walked in, I had a slice and I walked in, I, I saw this woman sitting at the bar and I didn't recognize her. She was going dancing at Oil Can Harry's in the valley with okay. all of her gay best friends and <laughs> that one of them had left his phone at her house and so he went back to get it and left her at the bar stool oh, and wow. i went i looked i seriously looked uh-huh and then i backed out and it was like that raiders of the lost ark moment where he sees snakes <laughs> and he's like snakes why did it have to be snakes i was like i'm not going in and then I looked again and I go, you can, I had the pizza. And I was like, just go in, uh, I have a beer and go, which is what I would do. And so I went in and I sat down about five stools from her. And then she said, finally, we connected a little bit. When I ordered, I could see her in the mirror. And I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. I knew I was in trouble when I went in. I knew, <laughs> I could tell, I just looked at her and I said, this is really bad. Uh, and so uh, uh, she said, you just, accepted my friendship on Facebook. You just accepted me as a friend. And I was like, oh my God, it's, I, I, yes, I know you're Melissa. Yes, yes. And so we just sort of went from four stools apart to three stools apart to two stools apart to there. And I left. I said, I got to go. She said, yeah, quit while you're ahead. And <laughs> the next morning, the next morning we texted like right at the same time uh to for lunch and we've been inseparable so I love uh that i mean we've had times apart but for the most part we really want to do everything together it's our, both of our third marriage mm -hmm. uh and so there's you know with that many marriages you realize there are things you're willing to uh compromise on and that there's things you're not really willing to oh, compromise you're in, okay so no. let's go right in there because we were talking about this right before we went on the air and i was saying all these relationships that look idyllic on the outside and then you know you get a little closer and you find nobody's got 
perfection and fine all the time and no conflict and no challenges. But I don't know, maybe you guys do, but, but I'm curious because do you guys, come on, you're human. You have to run into some walls. Don't tell oh, me yeah. you guys never fight. Oh, no, we do. We end up <laughs> laughing about them, but then we also end up back in the same bed. Uh, yes. You know, we don't, you know, the other, it wasn't long ago, Melissa, we got in a fight and she said, I'm going to sleep out in our, in our trailer. And I said, well, don't do that. You're just going to come back in. It's going to be cold. And so she, sure enough, she came in and I felt her spooning with me. And the next morning we both do what we always do, which is both apologize uh, because that. you don't get into a fight unless there's two people uh, involved. And, and uh, I can't remember what it was about. And, you know, so often it's not about what you're arguing about, but I was, yes, this was, this was, uh, long enough ago that I, I mean, I, I, I've, I've not been drinking now for a couple of weeks and I do, uh, I, I'm at an age where I, I don't necessarily stop, uh, when I, when, when I want to stop and that's a problem. And so, uh, I really haven't had a drink since that. So night. is that, is that like at the, at the base of some of those issues is, uh, if you've had too much to drink or around oh, yeah. the drinking? Yeah. I'd say all of my mistakes for the most part came from when I was drinking uh, for the most part. Yeah, it just doesn't work with me. I feel like 65, I should retire from drinking. Uh, I've this had is a good interesting. Run. This is late in life to be making that decision. And I know that you have a history of alcoholism in your family. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, my mom uh, was uh, finally got her, her 20th time in a hospital to, to dry out was Betty Ford in 96. And, did she dry uh, out? She did uh, for the most part. And then later I would see her and she might have a glass of wine in her 80s or whatever, but she would be okay. She wouldn't go back to where she was. And mm -hmm. I've often, I've never been, uh, uh, I would go months, if not a year, often. Uh, even since Melissa and I've been together, I've, mm -hmm. you know, I would do a, a job or work. And, you know, I did a play last summer and I really might have a glass of wine at night. It was just that who I become, alcohol makes me a dick. Well, it makes I, a I lot of people a dick. So, so tell me how, tell me what that means for you. So if you're drinking too much, because right. you're a really nice guy and you've got a really good heart and you, you're evolved and you have conscience. So, but I, I'm an alcoholic and I'm an, I'm an addict. So I know. So, so how does it, how does it manifest in you? What, what does becoming a dick mean? Well, I mean, I just, I, I, I probably run out of that patience that I, I mean, I will react in a way that I know would create another reaction. It's, I see. it's, uh, you know, it, it becomes, instead of, something is copacetic. I mean, I'll challenge something or I'll, I'll call bullshit on something like mm -hmm. any obnoxious drunk would do. <laughs> uh, you know, like just everybody's had that guy around and then I might say something and then, you know, uh, it's just, just it, it uh, I, I, I sort of lose control on the, some of the things that, you know, I hurt people that I, that I love. And, and um, that's usually, what's coming out of your mouth. It's not necessarily because I drink and they get mad because I drank. It's because right. of the things I say. So, you know, uh, and that are not really necessarily characteristic of me uh, when I'm sober. Mm -hmm. So they have, they land harder mm -hmm. uh, because you look at somebody you love and they're looking at you like, well, that's, 
I can't believe you just said that to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you know, my, that I can be all of that. I'm on your show nine seconds and I'm telling you are revealing horrible well, things about well, my personality. This is not horrible things. This is really honest. And, the, you know, if if we're, we're boring, if we don't, if all we are are good things, who cares? Uh, what makes us interesting and which, what makes us human is our humanity, right? And this is your humanity. If you were just right. Tim Busfield, this perfect guy, this perfect husband, this perfect father, this perfect grandfather, this perfect actor, who who care? Who wants to hear your story? You're boring. Nobody cares. Well, you're about so that right because I I I make sure I'm none of those things every day. <laughs> Uh, so uh, that, uh, out of respect for myself, uh, I'm going to behave like the worst person possible. Uh, just so I'm not boring. No, yeah, uh, just uh, yeah. so you're not boring. So no, seriously. So at this stage of life to decide you, to make this decision like two weeks ago. So, you know, I, I have a program of recovery as, as does our friend Snuffy. It, this is something you're just do that you can just do on your own. You can just do by sheer will. I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, part of it we were talking about in the car. I, I want to do it before it. It can't be, you know, before I, you know, got to go see it. Bill. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's, it, it you know, I, I yeah, I, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm fairly disciplined mm -hmm. on my work ethic and I'm fairly disciplined about, you know. So in other words, you're saying that me and Snuffy are sloths. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys, I don't know what it was with you guys. What was your addiction? Mine was marijuana, actually. I was a big old pothead, like big old pothead. Yeah, big. I like that stuff too, but I can't do it every day. And Melissa hates me when I'm stoned. Yeah. So uh, that that was easy to kind of get rid of. She just, <laughs> I'm, I become not present. It, it's, I figured out it's possible to take up like zero space in a room <laughs> when you're stoned. That's the problem. Uh, I'm not there for, I can't, I can't hold a conversation. I can't remember. I talk, I get all excited about work. Uh, uh, and then oh, I see, come up but with that. Yeah. See, that's the thing. See, I'm the biggest thing in the room when I was stoned. I get, I can't stop. Yeah. You know? Yeah, stuff. me yes. too. I can't get like that, but then I can't remember any of the great things I said the night before. And they that's really the weren't great. I, that's the thing is that they yeah. really weren't great anyway. <laughs> Yeah, you look at him, you write him down, you think, I can't remember any of this, you know? I also can't uh, read that, but... I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> they make no sense, like taking notes in a play when you're in the theater and you're trying to watch the play. No, you know, I'm I'm every, you know, I'm all, everything, as much as I might have done good things in my life or, mm -hmm. or uh, been a positive influence, I'm also, you know, um, I, I'm... I'm, I'm as dark as anybody could be it's all there the devil's there the you know the good parts there all of it's i'm all of like everybody i, I have every everything going on i haven't escaped uh so uh certain things so tim is 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 this something you guys work on like do you do you guys sit down and talk things through and and um do you work yeah. on the relationship or do you not have to do that we have such a great relationship because of our ability, not necessarily to talk serious, but we'll pick up a line from a movie and then pick up the very next line, you know, that is said after that line, or we'll recall or use quotes. And we, we know the same lines mm -hmm. from the same movies and we share 
constantly with each other. We're partners. We have eight grandchildren. We have children. Uh, uh, we love our children, but our children may not always love us. And so, you know, it's tough as a parent, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, you, you walk that fine line between being a parent, an everyday parent, then you become uh, sort of not there because they're sort of going through college and older age. And then um, you realize it's probably better to be friends. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 30, they're 40. Um, I don't say anything you wouldn't say uh, to somebody you wanted to be your friend. Stop saying, um, you know, be really smart if you did this or be really good if you did that or those pants are too high uh, or any of that. It's best to leave that stuff wet out mm-hmm. when they get older. And because I remember with my mom in my 30s, my mom would talk to me just like she did when I was 14. And I had to say to my mom, you can't do that anymore, mom. You have to talk to me like I'm your friend. So you go through all of that. Wait, wait, did your mom respect that boundary? Yes, my mom was. Tell me how you said it, because my mom doesn't respect that boundary. And I'm 67. I don't know how you did that. I said it. I said, mom, I'm not going to hang out and talk to you. You can't you can't rip on my ex, my son's mom. I can't have that around the house. I can't hear it. You, you're too comfortable with your advice to me. And I'm 34. Uh, I remember I was 34. But I, I said, I will talk to you and you can be in my life constantly. But we're better off if it's more of a, a like you would treat a friend. Mm-hmm. Don't say things to me that you wouldn't say to a neighbor. Um, and I think she heard that. And wow. the what you were asking before is you don't get to that point without talking to somebody, without talking to your partner. And mm-hmm. Melissa and I have a great relationship about that. And, you know, we also are open about mistakes or things that we say or do that might hurt the other person. We cop to them immediately. So there are really fantastic. no secrets, you know, which is so important. She knows all the atrocities in, that I've done. <laughs> She knows where all the bodies are buried. She um, knows. She and knows. I can Libby stay going. She knows that stuff. So and you know uh, that stuff about her because she has to no, have her stuff. No, no. she she doesn't. She does <laughs> she Alice in our room. She knows that stuff. I don't know that stuff. No, she says this is what's this. She would say often, you know, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. Uh, that, that's the mantra in the house. So no, yeah. She's extremely open. And if I, I'll, we'll call bullshit on each other. And then we know we have to cop to it. So, I mean, that happens. Or if something's, I was particularly frustrated today getting to this hotel. Uh, and one thing after another, including leaving my desk, at my phone at the front desk. Uh, and she said, are you, is everything okay? She was very grounded. Uh, and I know I'd been sort of, frustrated you know getting we got to this i got to this and the computer set up you know 11 minutes before we went on and so i was not uh i was pan- i was a little pressured and um she's very patient with me when i'm like that and That's she funny. doesn't engage she's really great her that woman over that, that there woman that woman over there. She, well she's got this this angelic light hanging haloing her entire being so she's kind of like a little angel back there in the 
She is all that. So, so did your families blend easily and naturally? Were there any bumps in that? Because that's a lot of kids, grandkids. Did, did oh, it? Oh no, it's it's bumpy. It's bumpy. It's bumpy. Uh, 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 and it's great at the same time. My, mm -hmm. we were uh, uh, Nana and, and Grandpa this weekend uh for our one-year-old uh Aww. rosemary and um she just uh, could not get enough of melissa um she i got her to sleep a couple times and changed a couple of diapers i i cuddled on on the couch with her and gave her a bottle and mm -hmm. and would walk her in the stroller in the park but she would be looking at me like i don't you're a dude and i don't know <laughs> but the second she'd see melissa she would go <laughs> and she she was they had an incredible week together and mm. you know all the grandkids we did that a lot for uh our 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 grand our grandchildren child ripley when she was first born uh, we went down to texas and you know let the mom sleep while we took mm. shifts and you know took the shift until melissa would take a shift until three or four and then i'd get up at three or four and take a shift until seven or eight just so she could rest and heal you know we love doing that but what a beautiful thing you know uh, uh you know, kids are kids are you know anybody that has that ideal perfect thing it's really not uh, it's not as easy um and we all love each other but you know, I have yeah. no advice to anybody on on how to an ideal way to to raise a child. I have no advice, really. I could, you know, on a lot of things. I could help somebody bunt a baseball. I can. Yeah, that. I can I, we're going to talk about the baseball. I know about the baseball. That's pretty cool too. Um, before we get to the baseball, though, while we're talking family, so because it's a blended family now, because the kids were so much older. Was there more acceptance of, okay, this is now my stepmother, this is now my stepfather, this is my my parents' person? What, were there any, did you walk into any walls with that stuff? Uh, not as much uh, because I, I my dad, my dad chose uh, uh, his wife over the kids. And uh, he was of uh, so many men. Uh, so we just sort of, we felt that I'm not in your life anymore. You don't love me uh, as much or why aren't, why can't I come over? But my dad was also blocked up for a number of reasons. You know, he was a, uh, a college cheerleader uh, and a Marine and he was raised in Texas. Uh, uh, and he did, he just really struggled with, and he has a, a PhD in theater. Uh, so my dad had all the makings of what you would want from an artist. Mm -hmm. Everything was all over the place. But he ended up working for Oldsmobile. Uh, Wait a minute. I thought, he was, I thought he was a drama teacher in Michigan. He was at Michigan State. And then he yeah. went to work for the divorce happened when I was two. Uh -huh. And he went to work in Michigan State. And then uh, he went to work for the Michigan Hospital Association as a lobbyist and then he went to work in arkansas so he was an artist not performing art uh, mm. he was a playwright not writing plays mm. uh he was an actor not acting mm. and when you don't do really what you love and what you've always wanted mm. and you put that on the back burner for a desk job mm -hmm. um i think it can become uh difficult sometimes uh, mm. for people and 
uh, my dad was alive when when he would see a player come see me in a play, and I knew he was always very proud of me. But I was just going to ask for that. I always felt that he was very. Um, see, he was a bit sad. There was a sadness about my dad because he wasn't doing what he loved, mm-hmm. uh, and I feel as though he he sort of my stepmom. I think had some issues with depression or polar issues, and he was trying so hard to manage that um, that it was easier for us not to be around. So with me, with really Michael is the only stepchild that I had when he was young enough, Melissa's boy was still in high school. Um, I took him on with however much he would want. That's a bit old, 16. You can't walk into a 16 year old and say, I'm your dad now, or I'm your stepdad now. Mm-hmm. But um, we are extremely close. And I sort of made up my mind I wasn't going to be that dad that that didn't that wasn't there as a stepdad. And mm-hmm. so I, I've enjoyed that. Um, all the rest of them are too old for me. I think if you, if, if, if they're under eight or nine or 10, maybe uh, uh, once they start getting into the teen years, I think you're better off not pretending to be their dad. Mm-hmm. But if they're under, if they're eight or nine and their consciousness is just now discovering school and the pressures of school, then I think you can really say you won't remember, you know, at seven or five, mm-hmm. they won't remember their life without you mm-hmm. as a dad. Mm-hmm. So you can be dad, dad, you can really weigh in there. And I think it's important um, because they're always going to want your approval. Even Michael wants to hear if I approve of what he's doing just, and I've only known him since he was 16 uh, uh, but he's, um, we're very close that way. And the younger they are, the more they are. So I didn't really have that. Melissa had it with Bruce Boxleitner's, uh, two boys, mm-hmm. uh, Sam and Lee, and mm-hmm. they consider her a mom, mm-hmm. uh, Mother's Day, they call everything. It, 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 they would feel remiss not including her. And she treats them like they're hers. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would do that with my kids, but they were just a bit old. Um, mm-hmm. she'll try, but they may not want to, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you guys are spread out. Your kids are, they're not. Daisy's down in Virginia. Daisy and Greg, her husband, Greg, uh, and Eli and Ruby are all down in Virginia. My son, Sam is in Sacramento learning to fly helicopters. <laughs> and my son, Willie, with the one-year-old Rosemary, is a director of photography, very successful shooting fashion. And he he lives in LA uh, and uh, they just moved from New York. So uh, uh, he's back and forth. So everybody is kind of spread out. So during the pandemic, so, okay, when, when the pandemic hit, um, we, we were talking before the show about being of service and, and the way I kind of did it was I went live seven days a week when the pandemic hit because I didn't have anything else to do. And I made this community of people that we became family and they're they're watching right now. And um, hello, COVID crazies. We're the COVID crazies. So when the pandemic hit, what where were you guys? What were you doing I assume work got halted. Were you in the middle of things when when everything stopped? I was in the middle of something that Snuffy would have been a part of. We were we had done the table read for 30 something. 
yes. the reboot. Yes. And the next day was March 13th. And ABC said, go home. We're shutting everything down. And so we had moved from Michigan and to New York uh, City. Mm-hmm. Melissa had auditioned for a play we and got it. And she got another play. So, and we were subletting and living around and she had, you know, she works. And uh, and I taught for a year at Michigan State and it was a great experience. Snuffy was a part of that as well. And I uh, uh, said, you know, let's just make the move. So we sold everything in Michigan, just left it there. It's a bunch of leftover stuff from both of our pasts. Uh, <laughs> and we sort of just said, take it all and gave up sort of any attachment. And we really cleaned house and and then we were in the city a little bit. And I, I said, I got to, you know, I, I want to own something. I, I, I'm I'm too old not to own something. I don't have enough money to go buy a big, huge house or a big apartment in New York. So mm-hmm. we bought a uh, hunting cabin in the Catskills. Okay, and what does a was, hunting cabin mean? Well, it's seasonal. There's no heat. The fireplace was the heat. Uh, there, you have to shut off the water when you leave and then you got to drain it. Uh, so wow. it won't freeze. Uh, you know, you've got to, it's, it's a rougher existence. There was a bathroom that was only about 15, 20 years old and there was an outhouse there. And so I said, this is great. And she was like, <laughs> what are you mental? Uh, this is, this is a nightmare. Uh, so I said, no, this is exactly, we'll get it. So we got it. And we put radiators in and we fixed the roof and put a new kitchen. You know, we did all that DIY. We had a guy up there, a carpenter who helped us, but we did all that stuff. And then we got it up right about the time, just a couple few months before the pandemic. Wow. And so we drove straight up from our place in New York and planted a garden and got chickens uh, and Sort of started but wait a minute, living. You, but it was seasonal. Did you freeze? We had changed had... all that. We upgraded okay. up the, oh, so we like from 2018, 19, up until mm-hmm. the pandemic, which was 20, right? Was that 19? Yes. 2020. 2020, yeah. So uh, uh, we the house was done in like December of 19. And then uh, for, it was very basic. We never thought we'd be there that much. It was just a little uh, cottage, a couple hours outside of the city. Uh, but then it became uh, uh, our our home. And in the first five years of the marriage, we were in Michigan. So we were honeymooning with each other. We didn't have lots of friends and other lives and other routines that we were in. Or our routines were each other, mm-hmm. which was great. Uh, and we really grew accustomed to that. So on the drive to New York from Michigan, one of the drives, we found Berryville. And we loved the guys. It was a married couple. And they had a place called the Stick It In. And I said, and I was, she was driving and I went on Priceline. I said, I found a bed and breakfast called the Stick It In in Berryville. So we laughed and then we went and we loved it. We loved the area. We loved the water uh, mm-hmm. and we loved these guys in the community. And so we started looking and found a place up there for like some ridiculous, like $93,000 for 14 acres and this oh thing. Lord. And it was just, you know, 
Now with the pandemic, it's much more and we've improved it, but it's our home. I can't imagine us not ever always having that. So, so how, okay. So how long did you guys stay kind of pandemic-y and, and how long has it been since you've been back out in the world, would you say? Well, we were, I was on a show called For Life. It was an ABC mm -hmm. show with Nicholas Pinnock and, uh, uh, we were on ABC and we had finished our season for the most part mm -hmm. uh, by that March. We we were done and we got picked up and the word was nothing is going to go until October, November. So I had Melissa like take all my hair off and <laughs> I just started eating fried food like a maniac. And I was like, let's just hunk her in here and, and, and order steaks and have let's just live in here and really hang out and sure enough we're the first show back in like oh. august uh and i'm pulling the hair out of my head trying to get it back i call the creator hank Seiberg. i said how long from the last episode to the beginning of season two and he uh, said it's a me and i was oh. like well we ended like on me and nicholas and now we're gonna come back to a same conversation so I was doing every trick in the book. I was blow drying it, pulling it out, using every bit of anything I could do Had to you make it look. Weight? I was in, I was just stopped eating everything. Uh, you know, the actor diet is no bread, no sugar, lots of water, no alcohol. All that took over. And I think if it wasn't for, I think I would have been a full-blown absolute alcoholic <laughs> and drug addict if it wasn't for acting. Uh, and mm -hmm. there's just certain parts where that's not in that being, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that being doesn't have that issue. And, and I'm just screwed up enough as an actor that I'm methody enough that I, I will stay away from what they stay away from for the, the most part. Uh, and so it's easier if you have a role, but I need a role. If I don't have a part, then there's really no reason for me to discipline what I eat. <laughs> or what I what I drink. I'm not worried about my health that much. I'm more from the, there's people that are concerned about their health. And spiritually, I struggle with that being more important than eat ice cream and die. I think both of those have the same spiritual. You can't have one doesn't mean you're more spiritual, you're more enlightened. Uh, you accept what you are, uh, or you, you know, so I'm from that school. And, and I went back and was in it immediately. We were very cautious. So we bought a, uh, we bought a, a two bedroom RV, you know, uh, uh, not a big that you drive or anything, uh, you right. know, a fifth wheel kind of thing, mm -hmm. not really expensive, but we were able to quarantine, uh, our kids and friends in that and give, and then we'd be outside and We'd have outdoor drive-ins or barbecue and, you know, people bring their kids and their dogs, but we would just stay out in the air. We did were you guys pretty, get COVID? Uh, Melissa did. I don't know if I ever did. Mm -hmm. I never tested positive. So Melissa got it bad. Oh. Uh, she got, she, it, it kind of, it benched her for oh. a little bit, but I still haven't, haven't gotten it yet that I know of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might have. And just didn't, you know, asymptomatically, it just didn't show. And so are you back to full blood? Are you like, is life completely back to normal for you guys? Has it been for a while? 
Yeah, but it also felt normal in a way, even even with the pandemic. I mean, there was a, you know, we we kept our honeymoon just rolling. We were in Michigan. We lived on five acres in Michigan. We'd go see our friends and family that I had there from growing up that we would spend time with. And she loved them and they loved her. But for the most part, our time has been our kids are grown. Uh, Michael uh, went to college in Michigan and we got him a place right by where I grew up in East Lansing. Um, And he, you know, uh, would show up and do laundry and stuff. But for the most part, it's the time we spend with each other. Um, It felt very sort of normal in a way. And I was working. And then when work started up and, you know, uh, I was on a series for the rest of that year uh, and then went to right into directing after that. And so, um, I, I, you know, I've been very fortunate uh, through the whole process that uh, it didn't sideline uh, my work much. Um, we became a better couple. Uh, we became a smarter couple because we had to do stuff ourselves. Uh, you know, we had to build the garden. We had to build the chicken coop. You know, we, you know, Melissa's up in the dead of winter with boots out, giving, making sure she's, the chicks have something to eat. Um, You know, she takes care of that garden. You know, we we got very earthy uh, and (laughs) I think, you know, evolved us it together. So take us through like I think you guys are so adorable. So let's say you're not working on, you're not directing, you're not acting, you're you're on an off week or whatever. Take us through like what a day is like for you guys, aside from feeding the chickens and, well, and doing the, the garden. The day starts. The day starts with Melissa listening to uh, uh, the sort of classical music station. Uh, I end up sort of trying to avoid the news, but I get to it too shortly. The dog, we got a dog, Chicago is a year old, a year and a half now, is so excited, wanting to play right away. Uh, And then not long after we start deciding which BBC show we're going to binge, do we need to catch up on the Law and Orders? Uh, What is this? You know, she's been watching The Great, uh, which I missed the first season of, so... I take that chance to play cribbage online. Uh, but we, you know, we we don't kind of, we aren't chasing life. We aren't chasing uh, uh, external pleasures. We're not saying, okay, we we have to get out and go see Nana and Nikki and, and, and go have margaritas and, uh, and have fun. If that happens, great. But we really like our time with each other. And that, that, you know, so, you know, I have trouble talking her into a binge. She, we watched Shetland uh, and then we got to the end and she found out that the lead actor isn't coming back. Uh, We were actually making plans to go over there. All of your shots from England only made us want to go to Europe (laughs) even more, especially the fish and chips uh, that you had. Those look really fantastic. You know, when you're in the country, you don't get, the food yeah. we go to the city to kind of eat that's our yeah. favorite thing is to eat in New where, York where's city. your place on the upper west side i'm an upper west side or where, where it's where up you? on up in the you know 70s in the yeah. low 70s 74th 73rd right in that area zabar's country a little south of zabar's but 
little south of Zabar's, but Zabar's. but close enough. Close enough. Oh, good. I'll get sent to Zabar's. I hate shopping though. I hate grocery shopping when she makes a list. She's a real cook, and so she's got stuff in there. It's like, you know, uh, uh, avocado paste. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, something that's like nobody has and we're up in the Catskills and I'm like, you know, I don't even know if there is such a thing as, but that's what I see. And I'm like, what is that again? Now, which one? I don't know. Which is the cilantro? Is that the parsley? I got, this is a cilantro. It's parsley. Uh, every time I come home, I've done something wrong at the store. She's sweet about it. But you know, when you leave ingredients and you're in the country, even though our store is only about eight minutes away, uh, you don't really want to get back in the car and go back, but I do. I trolley back. <laughs> I get, I get the cilantro. Uh, you know, it took me so long. She scal, you know, the the little green onion. You know, that you have the, scallion, the, the, yeah. the yeah, yeah. But the, the, they don't call them scallions in the store. They're called like green, and they call them something they call them green, else. They probably call them green onions, right? I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. why don't why if you're going to send me to the store, don't give me a, a don't give me a typo. <laughs> don't don't write a typo on the don't, write a, don't, don't say it's the wrong thing. I I'm literally uh I, I, to go get four items at the grocery store. I stand still for at least forty minutes, uh, and I grab people that walk by, and I say, "Where where's this?" And it's right in front of me. Uh, but I am I, so I, impressed with your college try, nonetheless. I mean, just the fact that you change the diapers, you go get, you go to the store to shop. You, you, you are ahead of ninety percent of the men in America. My well, hat I is try, off to you. I try. I, th you know, when you accept, when if you're okay with failure in your man, I'm good with that's that's my kind of man. <laughs> well, that's really great. Okay, so let's talk some of this career stuff and how this all happened for you because. I, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody's, any screen actor's resume who's done more theater, which impresses me more than anything, because that's where we all start, right? That's, and that's, anyway, I just, and the fact that you started two theater companies and one is, was, is for children. Do you have one of those cameras that adjusts automatically? Or are you doing that? No, I, I just did. I slide, oh, okay. I put the, I, I put the my laptop on the the trash bucket in the room in the hotel nice. room it's, it's like you know it's about those like owl that, so. cameras though that well you of course you know about it you're but you know about those cameras that do that when you move they move with you and stuff no yeah. i don't i don't have any kind of remote head on this yeah, thing yeah. at all no okay. i was just keeping it from sliding into my lap well, um good plan the, okay so so you you I'm assuming you started in the theater. Your father was a, was a drama teacher. So did, did you, did he open that door for you? Did you walk through that door? Did you ask to go through that door? When did you know that's what you wanted to do? How did you know that's what you wanted to do? Uh, you know, I, I think I, I always knew I yeah. wanted to be an actor. I went and saw, you know, my dad wasn't around, but his poster of, of death of a salesman that was in the basement was riddled with BB holes. We, it was a great target. <laughs> You could really kind of really isolate get in on it. Uh, and it worked well. But I I went and saw Burt Lancaster in a swashbuckler movie at the Lucon Theater by myself in East Lansing, our little East Lansing, where you could walk to the movies at six. 
and go You're to a movie. You're giving me goosebumps because you got to work with him. So this is a whole nother thing. I okay. did. And, so, I get, and I came home imitating him. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be a movie star. And my mom and brother and sister were like, okay, will you pass me the, you know, my mom made cheese toast with bacon. That was her one meal. So it'd be like, hand me the salt or whatever we needed to pound it with. But I went and saw that and I, I, I kind of had one of those moments where I said, I, that's what I want to do. And I kind of, and then I got to, to work with Bert and spend a bunch of time with him. And I oh. imitated him all my life after that. And, and then I got to play with him and I got to play with Redford, who I was also helped push me along. But I thought, how do you do that from Michigan? How do you become an actor from East Lansing, Michigan? It's really, really going to be hard to do. Had, and so, had you seen, had you seen a stage play? Had you gone to like a play at your, at your, at the school where your dad was teaching? Had you seen a play? My sister was one of the was was received awards in high school as one of the best high school actors in the country. If you could have all American uh, wow. for theater in high school, she was that. Wow. And then I saw my brother in a play. And when I was 14, two of my friends in class, Lois Weeks and Sue Hartwig, I hope you guys are watching. And I, they love when I tell the story. I know <laughs> came to me and said, hey, Busfield. We're, we're thinking of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas and we want you to play Charlie Brown. Uh, uh, what, what, what do you think we should do? And I'd already sort of, I mean, I, I was clear I was the class clown and did imitations and stuff like that. And so they, we sort of staged that play. I think Sue directed it and we sort of, you know, gave out parts and we did it. And then I remember the teacher, Mr. Van Wagner, <laughs> He came and he left us alone to mount it. And we took it illegally, I'm sure, right? All the dialogue, everything right from the show. It's a class project. And he came and saw it. And I'll never forget when, when we finished and we walked down to him. He was staring right at me. And he was a, one of the bad JV basketball coach at the school. And he was looking at me like an athlete. Uh, and his eyes, I could tell that he was beaming, but I could tell by his reaction that he liked what he saw. And I knew I'd done an okay job. Now, my mom was at that time sort of replaced in my life by a woman named Barb Bennington. She was the mother of my best friend, Casey, who, and we were, uh, from 14 on, first day of our freshman year, we were really, and to this day, we're best friends. Love that. Barb was a college actor in San Francisco and her dad was a theater guy. Mm -hmm. And I went with them to see Fiddler on the Roof at 14. And I came out of the movie dancing and I was dancing on the walls of the theater. I was dancing, I was singing. And all, all the other kids in her family, her husband was the head basketball coach at Michigan State. And all the other kids were athletes. There were no actors in the group, but she warmed to me and eventually sort of became my mom when my mom couldn't do it anymore. Mm. Barb said, you can come live with us. And she was what? a widow with oh. nine kids and a widow. And she took me in as her 10th kid. How old and were you when you went to live with them? 16. Wow. Um, uh, right in there, 16. I was at their house 
constantly from 14, but I think 16, 16, 17, right there, my senior year, she said, we have an empty bed because Pete had gone off to school uh, uh, one year older than me. Mm-hmm. And she said, take his bed. And she was in my ear constantly about acting, watching TV, watching movies. She was training me to be an actor. And my senior year, <clears throat> I pitched a really good baseball game at our favorite Okay, part I'm going to ask you about this because Lansing. you were also a baseball player. And, and well, you, I could... I, well, I I could act like a baseball player. I really couldn't play baseball, but that's another reason I knew I could act. Uh, I could fake it. I made a lot of teams just by looking like I could play baseball. Oh, come on. You can't make it. But she, I, I, I was a counselor at a baseball school growing up. I could play ball. Uh, and, and I played baseball until a couple of years ago. That was one of the things that in our marriage, Melissa, I had to say, I know I'm 60 but I want to, I'm going to go play baseball in Long Island hardball. And I made a team and we won a couple championships wow. and I went seven and oh, and it was a great experience for Wait, me. So how uh, crazy is field of dreams for you that you got to do that? You get to make like the definitive baseball movie of all time. And you're working with Burt Lancaster. Come on. That is crazy. Well, the Burt part is really great. That movie to me, the baseball so bad <laughs> in that movie. But I did get to do a little big league where the baseball was great. Yes. So I got to work with all those guys. That for me as a ball player, that I'm not a left-handed hitter. And I pulled off being Lou Collins, you know, uh, all-star, first baseman, left-handed hitter. That took some baseball skill. And that was fun. And walking in front of home plate in Field of Dreams and while they threw a ball and swung the bat, that took some baseball chops. Uh, but you know, most of the field of dreams is, you know, we had a great coach there, but our actors were cast not because of they were could pull off major league players, right. but their personalities. Right. Uh, and they were right for Phil's script. Uh, right. And they're sweet, great guys. But, you know, Little Big League had Ken Griffey Jr. and Raphael Palmero and, and you know, uh, so many. Hall Somebody's asking, and I think I know the answer to this. What what uh, Tony's asking? What position you played? You you were a pitcher. Were you a pitcher? In, in when you well, as a kid, I was always on the left side of the infield, which is where your better players are going to play: short, third, uh, and then you pitch. Uh, the very first game I did as a uh, my uh, my very first baseball game ever, I pitched. Mm-hmm. So you wow. you pitch. Did you play. win? Or, did you win? Uh, I I hit a lot of guys. That's all I, 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 I beamed maybe five or six games. I think they tried to get me thrown out of the league. I don't remember anything, but, but hitting people, I couldn't hit the backstop. I don't think the catcher caught one ball I threw because it just, I was, I was that, but you know, when you play baseball, you, the best, you know, my arm I had was gifted with a strong arm. Uh, and so I always ended up rotating into pitching. Uh, but when I got to the higher levels, when I played in Sacramento for a team called the Smokies, the Sacramento Smokies, I had 50 starts and it was all NCAA junior college, X major oh. league, we had two X major leaguers oh. in that league. I couldn't hit, I couldn't hit a 94 mile an hour fastball. I couldn't throw a 94 mile an hour fastball, but I could spin the ball and get young kids frustrated i can get them out 
but I, 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 I couldn't play defense anymore. They, I didn't want to, I wanted to win. And if you, I knew that me batting and playing defense wasn't going to help me win. Well, was it, was it ever, did you ever have in your head? Okay. I'm going to be a professional baseball player. This is going to be my life. I wanted to a lot was because Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell was a great major minor league baseball player and he was an actor. So I thought, well, maybe I'll be a baseball player and then I can segue into acting. I did get a pro offer from Saskatchewan of the Northern League, but I was 35. Uh, They wanted me to play in that Northern League where guys are spinning with their heads on the bats. It was an independent league. It was crazy where the guys running around with a big fat suit and can he run, you know, kids are chasing him all over the field. But I did get, I did get an offer for 500 a month uh, to go play with them. But I think it was sneakers or I had some movie and uh, it was, it was great. But uh, I, I, as a young person, I wanted to play, mm-hmm. but you know, I've got, I don't have, I'm not big and strong and fast uh, and baseball players, started to become gazelles uh, in the early 70s. Uh, and you had to have a certain speed. And the day of- Unless you, you know, were Reggie Jackson, athletic, he was my hero. He wasn't, he didn't have speed and he wasn't a gazelle, but he was my hero, but- Well, Dave Winfield and those guys just really changed the game when you can be did. six, six and fast. That's right. Uh, it became a more difficult- for someone like me to play. And, and I never wanted to lift. I always wanted to be an actor. So I never wanted okay, to lift so, weight. So you wanted to be an actor and you did this thing and you had this woman take you under her wing and mentor you. Where did it start to ha- So how did it start to happen for you? Well, I did. Uh, finally, the woman, the, the theater at the school, Kate Vile, uh, mm-hmm. who was our genius high school hall of fame. She did a lot of great plays saw me in that Charlie Brown that we did and bugged me constantly to be in a play. So I did guys and dolls my senior year. I would re- rehearse in my baseball uniform. Were after you Nathan Detroit? No I, no, I was the announcer. And now the hot box presents our star. I was, and I was a drunk. There's a nice scene with a drunk and the audience gave me applause. And then uh, I went to East Tennessee state to play baseball and hurt my shoulder uh, taking batting practice uh, and said, where's the theater department? And went and they had auditions 15 minutes later for, and I, there was a leprechaun and I could do the lucky charms. Ooh, magically delicious. You know, I could do that Irish that's not really an Irish accent. Uh, it's terrible, but I did it and I got cast. And then I, I immediately felt at home and knew I was on track and uh, spent a couple years there studying, then went to Actors Theater Louisville, and I didn't know where I was going. I apprenticed there, and then joined the resident company. It was one of the first ever. And tell everybody who was who was in the company with well, you. Well, Chris Cooper was in the company. Kathy Bates, wow. Martian Norman. Uh, we had Pulitzer Prize winners. We had Academy Award winners, Tony Award winners. We mm-hmm. won the Tony while I was down there for the best regional theater in the country. But I learned, I got a chance to be playing minor league or, or major league kind of ball uh, at, in Louisville. And then was discovered in the new play festival by a casting director named Ethel Winant, who ended up being Scott Winant, who was a producer on 30-something, Emmy Award-winning director at Snuffy Knows Well. Uh, his mom flew into New York and I auditioned for 
Saturday Night Live and uh, got a movie and got a play. Wait, wait, uh, let's talk about Saturday Night Live. What did you do for your audition for Saturday Night Live? They gave me some sides and they took us to a studio. They didn't tell me we were auditioning for Saturday Night Live. I didn't know till years later when I asked Lauren about it, when I did a Saturday Night Live, I asked him about it. And he said, yeah, that's that's the talent would come in and we'd give them sides. And I read Weekend Update uh, is where they were, you know, it's that kind of thing. Uh, sitting at a desk and they a chance to do a couple of, I didn't get it. Uh, uh, clearly I didn't get it, but uh, uh, I made the rounds and I was off and running from Louisville, Kentucky. And then, you know, Broadway, off Broadway, Broadway. Okay. TV so wait, movies. let's talk about the Broadway thing because we, we talked about this briefly before we went on the air that you were, your first thing was you understudied Matthew Broderick for Brighton Beach memoirs. So there's a story here, I know, because you you. So did you get to did you get to go on stage, Tim? I never. I got well. I I got to rehearse, and Maddie wasn't there in the beginning. Maddie was so great. I I understudy was the backup for both the boys, Jelko mm-hmm. Ivanek and Matthew Broderick. Both of them nominated for Tonys. Both of them great. But during the run, uh, and I'd already had a great. I was working off Broadway, but I had a baby and. 235 a week wasn't going to do it. So a thousand a week on the road with a Broadway contract was great. And I got to learn it from the back of the house. I I never went on in a performance. I never got to go on once. And I was with it about a year. I went away and did a series. I went and did a series. I went and did other stuff. I did a movie with Jelko. Uh, And then I kept coming back because, you know, with a baby in New York, a thousand a week and was a lot of money. And so I I did the final dress rehearsal at the Amundsen. And it was the first time the play really gelled. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matthew was, of course, won the Tony and was perfect in the part. But he maybe didn't quite know all of his lines so perfectly well uh, up until the opening. And so the actors, the show was at speed and it was great. And uh, they came out, Joyce Van Patten, all the actors came off Timmy and then Neil comes through Timmy and hugs me and Gene Sachs comes through and Timmy and gives me a hug. And Manny Eisenberg comes through, goes, unbelievable. You crushed it. Come here. And, and he pulls me into the dressing room and he's, I go, yeah. He says, you're fired. What? He said, what, what are you talking about? I just killed it. He said, you're too old. You're 25 and you got a kid. uh, And this is a 15 year old Jew from Brighton Beach. You you're great. We love you in the part, but we're going to have to get somebody who's more right for the role. And I said, well, do I still get to cover Stanley? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, do I make the same money? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, oh, oh, that's OK. Uh, I'm completely fine. Uh, and I was I'd done so many plays up to that point at Louisville and college and off Broadway and it was William Hurt and Lindsey Krauss and really mm. great people and original Lanford Wilson. I, I'd had so much success and had gotten my my act together that to sort of make some money and spend time with the baby was really great. I and I didn't want to go on once. I didn't want to do it once and then live with that because then I all those mistakes of that one time mm-hmm. i didn't want the that experience and i didn't need it uh and i knew i was going to be on broadway again someday and so for me it wasn't that big a deal i wasn't 
trying to get an agent. I had agents. I wasn't trying to get movies. I'd done movies. I'd already been on two series uh, by okay, that so point. So how did how did the screen acting stuff happen? How did Stripes and how did how did the screen acting stuff happen? Well, I went to the audition for Stripes in Louisville, and I said, "I see you're looking for. I won't do extra work, but I'm at Actors Theater." And the casting director said, "Oh, read, read." So I read, and I I got a part, and I got to I got to work a day on that. And then um, just auditions, you know, I went on 45 auditions before I got a commercial. Um, I started to get better at auditioning and, and you know, it's repetition. And then I got the, the, a series called Reggie, mm -hmm. which was a six episode Richard Mulligan, Barbara Berry, Gene Smart series wow. we did back in 83, I think. Uh, and then I said, let's, let's, uh, my wife uh, uh, said, let's move to California. It's better for the baby and lugging a stroller around New York City and up and down subway stairs. So we moved out there and I did a couple of guest spots and then I got the Revenge of the Nerds and, uh, and then got Family Ties and then I got Trapper John, MD, and well, Trapper uh, John had to be kind of a game changer for you because that was you were a series regular for a long time. It was uh, the last two Gregory years. Harrison, was, by the way, is a wonderful friend of mine. I love Gregory so much. He's a brother as well. I, he taught me so much mm -hmm. on that show. He was so great. And I was like a sponge. I was very, I love interviewing people uh, on how they do things. And mm -hmm. Greg was really, really great and taught me to be minimal. I had an offer to be on Family Ties as Alex P. Keaton's best friend. And I'd done a couple episodes. And then I got the offer for Trapper John and I thought I'd done the nerds movie and I said, I can do sitcoms and I know I can do the comedy, but I need to get better at, at, at film. And we were on film. I need to get better at, at drama. And so I took Trapper and it got canceled and that led to 30 something. Okay, wait, before um, you get to 30 something, you, you did Broadway in there and you met a little man named Aaron Sorkin. Some, how did, how did, how did that whole Aaron Sorkin thing start for you? Like, how, was it at the audition for a few good men? How, how did you meet Aaron? Well, yeah, they were, Tom Hulson created the role and right. Tom was, was great, was nominated for a Tony and was great in the end, but he was leaving. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, most all the rest of the cast stayed and they were moving into summer. And so they, they, I was on 30 something at that point and it was going into the last season of 30 something. Oh, I thought you met Aaron on, on Broadway and that's how you got 30 something. I did, something. I, I, no, no, I get, I was already on 30 something oh. and between the third and fourth year, they wanted a celebrity at, uh, on, you know, summer Broadway. Right. And so they flew me in, Don Scardino, uh, knew me and and Pat McCorkle who cast it I was a reader for her when I was a young actor in New York so I would read across from you know these great actors I would would just read as if I was from the casting department so she knew me and she brought me in uh, uh, and Don and I read and got the part and was offered to host Saturday Night Live uh, uh, the, the week I opened and I said to Lauren, and he said, this is the third time you've passed. You won't get offered again. I have a three and out. And I said, I thank you, but this is Broadway. I want to, I, I, I have a chance to open on this play and 
he said, push a week. And I said, I don't want to really push a week. I want to, I want to do Aaron Sorkin. I want to do it. Um, and Aaron and I became, you know, great friends from there. Okay, and we're we're going to talk about all of that, but Timothy, now you, you've done a lot of theater. Your father was a drama teacher at Michigan. You walking out on a Broadway stage for the first time, you are the lead in this show on Broadway. I, as an actor, I was that moment. It was great. Look, it was great. The four days going into it, I had a fever of over a hundred. I had a terrible flu going into it. And, and I just kept going through it. The day before I went on, I ran through it five times. It's a three hour play. I ran through it five times. Each time I ran it, it was more like two just because I was just running lines and doing block. And it was a great experience. But in 86, I started a nonprofit theater in Sacramento after Trapper John ended. So I'd written so many of the plays and directed so many of the plays. We would rehearse at the at the Mark Taper Forums Annex. Uh, Gordon Davidson would let me rehearse there because I'd done a play there mm-hmm. uh, in 81. And we always maintained that friendship. And he taught me a lot when I created that theater organization. And so when I got to that Broadway thing and I was in shape because of 30 something, um, but my voice wasn't in shape. Sarah Paulson would say I had theater voice, which is like I was like this afterwards. <laughs> hey, what'd you think of the show? <laughs> I was a TV actor doing a play and I was not speaking from my diaphragm. Mm-hmm. It was a phenomenal experience for me. My mom came. Uh, I was going to say, crying. did your dad get to see you? My dad came. My mom came. Barb Bennington came, um, those people to see, you know, uh, for them, the Broadway's the most romantic of all of them. You know, you look at, by the time a movie comes out, it's usually a year after you've shot it. Right. And the romance isn't necessarily tied to it. There'll be openings and premieres, but mm. you're usually on to something else. Yet the audiences perceive that as an extremely romantic time you're in a movie as if we just made it but there's a detachment in that and on broadway when you're making your way to a broadway theater and you can smell the peanuts and it's the crowd and the people are so excited and you got a ball cap on and you're weaving your way through times square to get to a theater and then they applaud when you walk out on stage Uh, And then they leap to their feet at the end of the play. That's immediate. That I, you know, that those 96 performances of which I think 95 had standing O's. um, (laughs) And then that, and then that romance and to be on a stage where Olivier had performed and Mm. it's just rooted in, in, um, I mean, it's just, it's just great. It's so romantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that experience has always been my favorite. Uh, and after I did that. Okay. No, wait, uh, go I back, went... go back. How, how did you get 30 something? Because that was a life changer for you. And so how, how did I that got a call? I, I was living in Sacramento and I was starting this nonprofit theater for children. Mm-hmm. And I knew because of Trapper John, I could get past school secretaries. I knew that the beehive hairdos with the pencils in them, that those <laughs> women would open up the door to the principal because 
I was, you know, a 29 year old leading man from CBS with 25 million people a week watching. So I had the clout to get past the school secretary. So I went there and I was focused only on that. And I'd said no TV uh, to my agent. Uh, and I, I knew that the Revenge of the Nerds sequel was coming up, uh, but I'd just done the lead on Trapper John the last two years of the show and was just sort of throttled back. I'd been through a divorce and the 30-something script came and I read it and I knew it was like when I read A Few Good Men uh, and like when I read Field of Dreams, it was just magic. Uh, every page was magic. And I'm sure Snuffy would tell you the writing on the show was just, was like nothing I'd read. It was so real. And I'd spent two years trying to be so real on Trapper John that really helped well, me. Where did you get yeah. that from, Timothy? I, I heard you say that you were teaching young actors how not to act, which I love more than anything. How did that become ingrained in you? Because that, that's the gift of acting is not to act. Where, where did, well, where did I you worked, get that? That's really, you know, uh, a lot of it was John Jory out of Louisville. And a mm. lot of it was just Pernell Roberts and Greg Harrison on TV, you know. Mm. Uh, and I would pick their brains and they would say, you know, let the audience come to you. And I was so young, mm. I could try anything. I had no bashfulness. But I really learned, you know, and was studying on how to let the audience, you know, how 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 to perform in a way that the audience, they're looking at you, the lights are off, usually they're focused on you. You're the only lit thing in the room. You don't need to perform at them. The writer didn't write it so you can give a good performance. Uh they they did it so you could tell a story and and being a part of a, a dramatic format, when I was going to dailies every day, they don't do this anymore. But at Fox, at lunch, uh, I would go sit in the old little, um, you know, theaters where the projection booth and the guy's name, Tommy, roll dailies. And you'd have the pops that were those things that when it goes eight, seven, six, five, right. and it's going... Dude, dude, dude. And then you'd watch your coverage, your close up. Mm -hmm. You'd watch the master. Then I'd watch myself in a scene. And I was able to say, I it was the next day, I was able to say, oh, here comes take three. This is when I, I did this, or this is when I, I chose to do this. And then I'd see it and I'd hate it because mm -hmm. it wasn't spontaneous. It was mm -hmm. pre-planned, mm -hmm. uh, very much like you would do if you were doing a play. Mm -hmm. um, and I really learned from dailies. And then 30-something, they had dailies every day. Marshall and Ed, we'd have dailies. We'd have pasta, and and we'd go up, and we'd watch what we shot the day before. Wow. All the cast wow. would go up there, and we'd watch. And you'd remember what you were doing, and we really got better at at you know film acting uh so is that how is, you started to learn how to figure out how to be a director from watching those dailies yeah now i directed i've been directing well, you at must this have been directing theater, theater forever and produced at an equity theater i had an right. equity theater by the time 30 something come around i'd, I'd had i i started directing professionally in 1980 
Okay, but so, that's different. But stage directing is different than film directing, no? Yeah, well, yeah. it's you know, it is, it is absolutely, and and I I would I would not go on the record of saying it's different. However, uh, scene interpretation, mm-hmm. blocking, right. and performance are exactly the same. Right. The difference is is that the audience is inside these plastic and glass. Uh, contraptions that record the element and the sound uh, can allow them to speak at a normal tone, uh, which allows the audience to believe them even more. You're not doing that projecting Plus Broadway. You can project. stop and do it again, which is all of that. Yeah. You can do it. But as far as the ability to say to an actor to know to say to an actor, cut or stop, great, 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 love it. Is there value in trying it this way? Versus, uh, no, that's terrible. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't, I knew how to talk to actors by that point. And then- And being Horton, yourself actually, you know, is a huge- It taught me a lot. And I know that, you know, the biggest mistake most directors make with actors is they want to treat us with kid gloves because they're afraid of us because they don't know how to do what we do mm-hmm. and they don't want to mess us up, mm-hmm. but they don't realize they can fuck with us and that they can <laughs> play with us, that we are carnies. <clears throat> and I, I'd learned that. Um, see, I'm doing Broadway voice. <laughs> I'm screaming into a microphone <laughs> right here. It's so stupid. Um, <clears throat> Peter Horton came into 30 something as a director. Oh, then he directed and then ken said well i'm directing now and then ken directed and i said i'm directing now and then and i directed why, why did they open the door for all of you guys to be able to do this i think they they with that show particularly mm-hmm. at that time tv was so uh uh the formula was so pat it was a master over over close up close up Every show, uh, murder she wrote. Every single show, with the exception of the Botchko shows, which had come along, mm-hmm. and maybe some of the 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 uh, Paltrow uh, shows, Saint Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Those shows started to sort of cinematically stretch television. Mm-hmm. Then Ed Marshall came in and shot them like movies, like old time directors would shoot movies. They let the actors move the camera. They used real blocking the there wasn't camera tricks and devices we weren't wanting to draw attention to it so we'd go to dailies every day and we'd hear them marshall and ed two geniuses in my book with a director in between them and we would hear them teaching that director how to do the show so we would be eating our lunch watching ourselves but listening to Ed Marshall give an education to the directors. And once that became a possibility, I directed one, they gave me one, and then they came back and then the studio said, give them two more. And so we started to- Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah. We, Ed Marshall, I think really wanted No Bad Habits, which is where I was going, which is TV at the time was, uh, uh, predictable, what directors were doing. And because film was expensive, they would edit in the camera and they would say, we're here in this shot and then we'll be in this shot. 
and everything was very sort of formulaic and mm-hmm. and ed marshall wanted the rawness of none of those habits uh so they gave a lot of us snuffy included uh they gave a lot of people a chance to to show what they had at a young point in their career snuffy uh, had never and, done a show it was his first show that was his very first yeah, show that, and, and look at that's what they wanted they wanted mm-hmm. fresh they knew they they weren't going to get that out of the seasoned pros. And mm-hmm. so our directors were theater directors in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few of them. Uh, John Pasquin directed and he'd done a lot of TV. But for the most part, the cinematographers, actors, costume designer, Patrick Norris, uh, we were all. Uh, I had done a series. I'd probably had the most work. Uh, did you uh, get with cast two- without an audition? Did they did they say, okay, you're you're yeah, I read, I went and read, and I, I immediately had the gate of their writing. You know, they write it, writers write it and they hear it. Did you and only then read you, for Elliot? Did you it, it was that it? Was that no, the part? I read for Gary, Peter Horton's part. And then they said, Elliot, and my agent said they want you to come back in and read for Elliot. So I went back in and I read for Elliot and then they said, read Gary again. And so I read Gary again. And then my agent said, well, they want you, but they don't know if they want you for Gary or they want you for Elliot. And I said, well, you tell them that I don't know anything about being the single handsome uh, uh, guy, but I can screw up a marriage. So <laughs> let, me, let me play that guy. And I had been through a divorce and I had a five-year-old and like Ed Marshall, we dumped on that show. We dumped every, uh, all of our stuff, uh, into the show. We poured all of our wow. frustrations and anxieties and our limited behaviors and all of that stuff. And Elliot was very much the voice. I was a, I didn't like that part of me. And I very seldom was that guy, but the, the boy of Elliot was somebody I could draw and share. And that made it so artistic to be Did able you to know right away. Did you know, as soon as you guys started working on, okay, this is, this is going to be a hit. This is, this is it. No, as a matter of fact, at the upfronts, they hated us. We we <laughs> did we had done the pilot and we were already shooting probably our first or second episode. And we had to go to Long Beach or something and go to and they had the upfronts and they we were reviled in <laughs> after before we'd aired. Nobody <laughs> knew what we were. They said, You're a soap. How dare you be in prime time? You're nothing. They were the number one show is murder, she wrote. Every one of us were completely taken aback. Then, of course, the next year they were like, "We love you." You know, we'd won the Emmy, well, and we you guys were... hit with the audience immediately, right? You, you, yeah. The show was a hit. It was a it was a big hit. We didn't know. I knew we were at the Burbage Theater in in Santa Monica. I think is where it was, Westwood, Santa Monica. I think, and Ed Ed had done wanted to rehearse with us. Mm-hmm. And he'd separated the partners, like Ken and Mel went off in another area, and Patty Wedding and I went off in another area, and we immediately started arguing improv. And in that moment, uh, uh, all of our opinions, we and 
Patty and Ken had been friends of mine. Uh, I already knew them. Patty and I were off Broadway at Circle Rep. And so we were very close uh, going in. And Patty and I just started sharing all of our crap uh, with our with her, how she talked to Ken and how I talked to my ex. And, and we poured that in and she had done a play with my ex. And if I ever called her by my ex's name while in a scene, she would go, yes, because she would tweak me just like she knew my ex would tweak me to get me going. Uh, and she loved nothing more than when I would refer to her as that. So that was a grounding moment. Then um, we really, uh, on Trapper John, there were actors on that show that weren't talking to each other. Uh, it, by the seventh season, sixth season, Purnell had alienated too many people mm -hmm. and it was all divided uh, and sweet, great people. But it's what happens on a show when you're when your company doesn't stay tight. Uh, and that happens when outside elements come in a clothing line or you think you're more famous or whatever. And we intentionally stayed very insulated. Uh, we had talked about not letting outside elements in you know we had a lot of people that are younger would get that from friends um you know that we were an ensemble that loved each other mm -hmm. and we loved the work and we were very cautious about uh letting uh outside elements trip us up uh and we didn't want to go down that path and you could see at that time you know the the dudes on the motorcycles, chips, they were misbehaving. Those you 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 had moonlighting was toxic. Uh, you had so many toxic stats. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ken had been on a couple of Bochco shows that were, of course, Bochco shows and great. And we'd all worked around, but we all were very uh, in agreement uh, on that uh, as an ensemble that we weren't going to let the environment be toxic. Uh, and it really helped us a lot. And uh, so this is one of, you corrected me before we went live that I thought you and Snuffy had done four shows together. It turns out you said more like 10. Um, 10. Oh my God. And Melissa also um, worked with, so now you, I know about sports night. So tell, tell us a little bit about sports night. Well, I mean, Sports Night was just Aaron Sorkin and and the beginning of Sports Night led to West Wing, right? Mm -hmm. And Aaron had been a big fan of 30-something. And so Snuffy seemed a natural choice. You know, we'd been very close at that time uh, rolling in and it was Aaron's first show. Um, and, you know, Snuffy was by that point so prolific uh, in television, constantly working. Um, <clears throat> seemed like the right guy. I, I don't, as, an, as a guest director, it was Lipstick Jungle, I think, where I hired. Uh, uh, and I don't know whether he'd done the pilot, but it was Lipstick Jungle where I was an executive producer for mm -hmm. the first time with Snuffy. Uh, other times, and there was another show called uh, uh, Life for Life, I think. But, and a, a writer from 30-something had created, Jill Gordon. And Snuffy was on that, and I directed a lot and was acting on the show. Well, and Studio and 60. and Studio 60, where I directed and produced on Studio 60. Uh, I got the chance to talk to Snuffy a lot. Uh, as a guest director, we don't 
really have conversations with the composer. Right. Uh, and then Snuffy, I taught at Michigan State for a year and I wanted to show the kids how things move up. So I had professional actors and Snuffy and editors all to help the kids understand how the games played at a higher level. Uh, and Snuffy did that. And, you know, the great thing about Snuffy and is that it, it's not his ear, which is great, second to none. Uh, it's that music in film is your last chance to rewrite. Mm -hmm. It's your last chance. The, the film is locked. They don't come in with music until you're down to that time code, which mm -hmm. is in thousands of seconds. So he knows that the music cue is going to start at 29 minutes, 30 seconds, and four one thousandth of a second that's the first note of of whatever he's gonna bring and being in a room with snuffy when you're music spotting which is when you look at it mm -hmm. and you discuss with the composer i you know in my version there was music here in my version there's music there snuffy's always coming from the story side he watches the story and he falls in love with the story and the performance and then he brings what he can do to help, much like John Williams, mm -hmm. much like the Hall of Famers. And Snuffy's a Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. what, those guys, they rewrite the end of your movie. Uh, <laughs> Jaws is done. It's locked. It's done. And John Williams says two notes. Bum, 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 bum. Spielberg says, you're out of your mind. That's no way. There's no way. And William says, trust me. Now, uh, Spielberg gives his movie to John Williams mm -hmm. and says, do whatever you want, mm -hmm. because John Williams does the last rewrite so mm -hmm. well. It, you can't add any color. You can't, I mean, you can add color. Mm -hmm. You can do that and do, do that, but you can't add costume color necessarily. You can't change the rhythm of scenes. You're locked. Your television, you're 42 minutes and 30 seconds. You're not going to open it up to add another minute to then lose two more minutes when shows are coming out every week, you have to be locked. And that's when the composer really does their work. And um, nobody's better that I've experienced in television, uh, uh, maybe anywhere than, I haven't worked with John Williams, but I have worked with James Horner a couple of times as an actor and mm -hmm. seen the movie before him and after him. Uh, and he was, Genius. a master he was I, I don't i can't get over what he can do in field of dreams he hits a musical note about the time that uh kevin says to dwyer brown playing his dad hey dad you want to have a catch all that time he's climbing 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 and then he he says that and he hits a note and it's like a dog whistle for men's emotions they just can't help themselves. And I never thought anybody would see that movie, but women, I thought women will like it because of Kevin, but the baseball's so bad. Uh, nobody, men are, aren't going to watch it. And it's a, it, it makes men, it opens weep. them up. Yes. Weep. And it it's, it's weep. It, from the opening bell, it's James Horner's music. Uh, so so tell us about saw, that. How did you, uh, how did you get Fields of Dreams? How did that happen for you? Well, 
uh, uh, Margie Simpkin, the casting director, I was a reader for Margie Simpkin when she was doing Broadway Mm -hmm. and, and movies and TV. I was the reader for Brazil. I was in the Chateau Marmont for uh, uh, several days with Terry Gilliam auditioning movie star after movie star coming in. And I would read the Jonathan Price part or read whatever parts were there. And Margie Simpkin, 30 something uh, was, it was at the end of our first season and Margie Simpkin brought me in and I read, I had an offer for a Mark Harmon movie, baseball movie uh, to play a role, or I could wait and see if I got cast in Field of Dreams. And I said, it's just really no, there's no, um, there's no choice here. I'm going to wait. If I can be a part of Field of Dreams, you could tell again, script. You knew as soon Harry. as you read the script that. Page after page. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, a few good men. Perfect. 30 something. Perfect. Uh, uh, when you read a, uh, one of those projects that lives on like that, it's the on the West it's Wing. Right. Okay. I got, you know, the West Wing. I got to say, Tim, you know, every scene you did with Allison, like, I, I I would get melancholy when you weren't on screen. I, I mean it. I would long for you to come into the scene. You were so spectacular in that. You really were. Mm-hmm. It was a Thank really you. subtle, beautiful. Yeah, I really longed for you when you weren't on the screen. It was Aaron's writing. You know, Aaron got mad at me. You know, we we had end up, I would live down there. I would stay at his house when I would do the West Wing and sports night. I directed sports night, acting on the West Wing, going back and forth between the stages. And uh, he gave me sports night and West Wing to read them both. Uh, and I said, sports night is great. West Wing is, the West Wing is the best thing I've ever read. Huh. And he got mad at me because I didn't say the same thing about sports night. And, and his wife had to call me. Julia had to call me. And we were like besties. I was in their wedding. And he's just like, Aaron's upset because you did. I said, I said it was great. It was great. I just said the West Wing was better. That's all. And it turns out I was right. Yes. But sports night was great. There was no doubt about it. But the West Wing from page one, uh, it was that fairy dust thing. You read it like you would read any great play or great book or classic book where you're just going, boom, you just can't put it down. Uh, and then it wasn't just my opinion. Uh, people have supported that. And he called me and said, I need I need your heart. I want you to to be uh, uh, on the West Wing. And I was like, they got, you got plenty of heart. You got Marty and but he had written this part and named the character after my character in A Few Good Men, mm-hmm. who was Daniel Caffey, named him Danny. And he said, an impossible love interest. So I, I, that's all he had to tell me was possible love interest. And Alice and Janney, on the very first day, my character was flirting with her. And she was like, this is great. Great. Thank you. Someone's treating me like a woman, which is great. I'm not, I'm not just the dude, another dude in the show. Uh, and she really liked it. Aaron liked it. And it was a great experience. It was the writing. It's the writing, Vicky. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a journeyman, solid actor. And there's times I can be good, really good. And there's, I avoid really bad for the most part, but I'm no Lawrence Olivier. I'm not, you know, there's so many, the Sean Penn, Robert Downey Jr. There's so many actors that I look at and I think, wow, 
I can't do that. Gene Hackman. Uh, I admire so many, um, but I still get to be on the field with them. I, I can play pro ball, but it's the writing. Uh, the best actors get the best scripts. Well, you're, also, uh, you're, you're cutting yourself short quite a bit, but I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but you are uh, I, under, I'm, undervaluing I'm, yourself here. Quite well, a bit. That's sweet. I'll be in the game for a long time. I'm executive producing a show for Fox right now uh, nice. called The Cleaning Lady. And I'm an executive producer, which is a that head is coach. so politically incorrect, The Cleaning Lady. <laughs> I know it is. It's wrong. Uh, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a third season Fox show. Uh, and I'm executive producing. I love my job. I love Fantastic. the cast. I love the writers. It's great, but I'm not at a premiere, uh, at man village in Westwood starring in a movie, uh, you know, uh, with Ryan Reynolds. I'm, I'm not, I'm directing, I'm coaching. I'm, I'm keeping my career afloat. Uh, I have been in some good stuff and recently been in some good stuff, but it's a 50 year career. And for me to stay going in a 50 with a face like this, I better direct. I got a face for directing. Hey, uh, that's just not fair. That's just so it fair. helps. You never know. What's it, 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 it helps. Um, but the writing, I can honestly point at the shows that you mentioned and that everybody knows. Um, those were all shows that won Emmys for writing mm -hmm. and were nominated for Academy Awards for writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and they live on forever. So, so fortunate. And I'm not really taking anything away from myself. I'm trying to honestly, if there was no writer's strike when we made Field of Dreams, I couldn't have been in it because the there was no corn in the Midwest because it was a drought in 88. So they had to, they had to, the, the producer insured the corn. They had to bring in buttloads of water that cost a mint to have it shipped in uh -huh. to irrigate. And then, so we couldn't shoot anything towards the corn until August. And August with this, had there not been a writer's strike, we would have had to be back in July. And Ed Marshall would not have let me finish the movie. Uh, they'd already told Ken Olin he couldn't do Ghost. Uh, he was offered the lead role, one of the leads, not the Swayze wow. part, but he was offered that and he, Ed Marshall wouldn't let him out. So uh, they weren't going to let me out. They were going to bring me back and they would have had to recast and shoot my scenes in that movie. So there's luck. I was fortunate uh, to be in that and fortunate that well, there was a they, drought. What do they say about luck? Luck is when opportunity meets persistence or something. I mean, you know, you have a lot to do with creating your own luck. You know that. Well, if I had taken family ties, then I couldn't have gotten 30 something because I would have been under a contract that ran past my Trapper John. Do you believe so, in destiny? Do you believe that things happen for a reason that do you believe in that? Yes. I, I don't know it any other way. I can't. Me too. I believe in the rules of karma. I believe in mm -hmm. destiny. I, I believe there was destiny when I saw Burt Lancaster and fell in love with that actor and wanted to imitate him. There was something in that I, I almost felt like I'd get to meet him again. You know, you see somebody and you, you have that, that moment. And uh, what you was can't his reaction it. when you told him the story? 
I didn't imitate him to him. Uh, uh, and I didn't tell him. I never told him. I just said, oh, I never, on. I, I don't think I, I don't think I, I don't think oh. I told him I didn't want to come off as one of those. I might've oh. told him, but mostly we, we spent a lot. He really took a shining to me oh. and he would come on set when I was in the bleachers and that big ending and he'd watch us do scenes and then he would mess with me like so. we do as actors. Well, he said, we were about to shoot our first scene and I'm like, I'm, I'm, this is that's Burt Lancaster. And I'd already worked with Jack Lemon and I'd worked with some of my heroes before, but I'm like, that's that's Burt. And he turns to me and he says, Here, son, take my coat. <laughs> and I, I was like, okay. And he hands me his coat and I, the wardrobe, Mary, can you? And I hand her the, the coat and we're about to do the scene. He says, Here, son, <laughs> you're in my eyeline. And I said, no, Mr. Lancaster, I, I am your eyeline. I play Mark in the movie. Uh, and he was just, that, that's what those old timers did. They wow. just mess with people. When Jeff Daniels did Purple Rose, he sits at a table with all these great old time movie stars. And Jeff tells a story, he takes a napkin and he snaps the napkin and he lays it in his lap. And one of the old timers turns to him and says, are you going to do that with the napkin? And Jeff says, shouldn't I do it? Should I do it? And he was like, oh, I wouldn't. <laughs> so they light it and they come back and Woody Allen calls action and Jeff takes the napkin and puts it in his lap <laughs> and all the other actors in the scene snap their napkin <laughs> and lay it in their lap. And Jeff goes, I was totally, they totally messed with me. And that's so much of what actors are like. And Bert did that. And he told me stories about, I asked him, you ever get nervous? I never got nervous. I'm going to make this picture. I'm going to make that picture. I said, Elmer Gantry. And he goes, I got excited with Elmer Gantry. I was asking if he got excited. He said, and then he tells me the story and he got excited with Atlantic City. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, he would tell me stories about that. But, you know, we spent a lot of time sitting waiting for corn to grow and um waiting it was for corn to grow okay so speaking of off-camera relationships so you are somebody and melissa as well who be, we talked about this before being of service is a huge part of your life your lives uh melissa being the president of the screen actors guild you have this and I know you guys have done like Thanksgiving meet, you know, you go and you go to the soup kitchens and you do that stuff. And you created these two theaters, one for children um, and being of service is a big part of your lives and who you are. And I know, and I, and, and this is like a shout out from my beau, but I know that um, Snuffy was of service to you once. Um, I've heard the story. I've, he I've heard tell of the story, but I'd love to hear it from you. Well, we were doing we were doing lipstick jungle which snuffy was on and mm -hmm. uh the the fires uh, you know the, i lived not far from snuffy when he was living in, in the Topanga canyon the calabasas mm -hmm. area and and that malibu canyon that run in there i can't remember wh if which canyon it was i don't think it was malibu canyon i think that was up one but it was uh a fire would start and they would burn through that, you know, the ocean air and everything. And it would just, everything would light up. And I was at the top of a mountain up there. 
and I was on lipstick and I couldn't go home. We were about to open and I couldn't go home. I said to my wife, go, uh, go to a hotel, get out. Um, but I asked Nuffy if he would go up and take a peek uh, at the house. And he said, sure. And he went up and took a peek and came back down to see if my family was okay. And that's Snuffy. Uh, I, I couldn't get to him. I couldn't find out what was going on. Um, and it was still safe enough. And Snuffy went up and 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 got back to me, called me back and told me that the house was still there and everybody was okay and looked like they were packing to go, I think, and get out. And just to have that kind of friend, know people that would do that. Um, you kind of want to be that. You know, people growing up, whether it was Barb Bennington or whatever, that you know, if you can help somebody and you decide not to, mm-hmm. uh, I'd rather not be in that position. I'd rather, if I have the thought to help, I'd rather do it. And um, we only, Melissa's whole thing has been, if you don't give, then you can't have nothing to receive anymore. You go, this comes empty, you empty and then rebuild. And she's always been really good at that. Um I knew I fell in love with kids at that Charlie Brown performance in high school. I fell in love with that audience. They brought in after they saw us. I didn't tell this part of the story, but the teacher and the principal and the drama teacher mm-hmm. brought all the K3 kids in East Lansing in to see our Charlie Brown. And we did another performance of it, a couple of them for school kids. And I saw their wide eyes and I knew I had an ability. And then I, I ran a children's theater in Vermont and did some children's theater in Louisville and started a company out of East Tennessee State when I was there. So that audience to me, I've always felt it was the key to the American theater that we weren't feeding guppies anymore, that I love theater and I was young. So you think, how can I make sure theater lasts forever? Well, there's only one way uh, in my mind, and that's that kids grow up with theater as part of their curriculum. And if we ignore that, which we are, uh, equity is terrible about it. They won't, uh, there's no equity children's theaters. They don't allow for it. They don't allow for the budgets of what you can get from a school. The Broadway will do a smattering of performance, but I said it needs to be uh, 360 performances a year, 130,000 kids a year. Uh, in the schools, K. I was going to say it needs to be in the schools. My, my kids went to school in New York, and I fought like hell, raised a lot of money to get them into a public school called Manhattan School for Children, which had drama, art, dance as part of the day. And when we came out to LA, that didn't exist. But I sat in on classes, and in La Crescenta, they put on play. My kids were always in plays, but it's hard to find in LA. It is hard to find. It's really hard to find like professional actors like you'd see on Broadway. Mm -hmm. They don't get them. They can get older brothers and siblings and they can get their friends. But a four hour Annie that you see in high school, you go see a four hour Annie, you may never go back. But if you were to see a young Jane (laughs) Kaczmarek, a young Bradley Whitford at 22 or 23 or Sam Rockwell, If you were able to see those guys in your elementary schools, if we were funneling our young professionals and I did it and I saw the reaction to me and there, and they thought we were real. They didn't know, but 
you could see that they trusted theater now mm. because we were performed by professionals. You don't have that anywhere. In LA, it's too hard. I couldn't do LA because I couldn't afford understudies. Uh, and I would lose actors to day work because mm -hmm. it's L.A. Right. Sacramento I chose. There was no other professional children's theater. There was no other full time equity theater. So I chose Sacramento. Now, uh, how many years is it? It was it's 30. It's a lot. That was 86. So it's still running. Two hundred thousand people a year. Adults, kids. I started the B Street Theater five years after the. That's an, adult, that's an adult theater yeah that was the adult theater and sorkin was in the original company was wow. the second play was a sorkin play wow. uh edie mcclurg was up there jim mcclure the writer sorkin we did some new plays but we really sort of i'd won the emmy that year and it was i knew that we went in the round so we didn't have to pay for sets and i was in plays and we had open-ended runs and we built an audience, which is now supporting our $33 million building. We have 11 wow. million in the bank. Uh, wow. we're, uh, we, it worked. Feed the guppies and then give them a place to come when they're adults. They'll, they'll, they'll respond. And that's how it's worked in Sacramento. Timothy, where, where do you think you get, your mother was an alcoholic. Your father was kind of absentee. Where do you think you got this? ethic of being of service and of creating for others where do you think where did this come from in you do you think um you know i can directly say that you know as a kid i was so curious about religion i would go to the i would go to the church i'd put on a i remember my little blue blazer and a and a <laughs> fake tie a clip-on tie and i'd go but i wasn't seeing it there and my grandfather was a preacher and my other grandfather was a would reader at stuff. And my mom was a preacher's daughter and acting mm -hmm. like it. Uh, and then I was about 15. I saw I walked into a house where my brother was just moved in and I saw a picture of a guy named Mayor Baba. And Mayor Baba is the don't worry, be happy, dude. And I recognized him immediately. I said, oh, I know who that guy is. And his moniker whatever he was already dead at the time was mastery and servitude uh and so i would read his stuff and and have been reading his stuff you know all my life and met people that were worked for him and, and did work for him and so i would think the influence of that at 15 uh at an impressionable age and then 20 again in a much more intense way as an adult when I really started to learn about the life of, of this guy, this Indian master. Uh, and it was all about service. And it was all about, uh, it was all about service. And that's what he did. Uh, you know, he did all that stuff. Those other guys did, Buddha did, and, 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 and Jesus did, they bathed lepers and they would live with the poor and, and, uh, he did all that. And so before I even became an actor, I was already inclined um, spiritually to serve. So I knew that I, my life would not be uh, a full life if a great deal of it. And it's brought me more pleasure than anything. 
the service, whether it's the theater for kids or whether it's serving homeless or, you know, teaching uh, those things where your focus is truly on on giving. Um, it's amazing how much those experiences can fill you up uh, when you're giving. Uh, uh, people are so afraid to give because they want to keep everything. They won't have here. enough. Yes. They won't have enough, but then you give and, you uh, get so and much it comes them. back. There's a great story. And I don't know if it was a Buddhist story. Some of the audience would know it. I don't, I'm, I'm not a really religious person, but I, there's a great story about um, a very rich man who has said, I'm going to give 10%. I give 10% of everything I make. Look at what I'm doing. And the response from the spiritual master was, you think that's great, but this person only has a penny and they gave the penny to somebody who needed it. That's all they had. That's service. And wow. what they get back from that is a lot. So there are people that give money that have a lot and they hold on to it. And there's those people that have what they have and give it all. Uh, and it's hard to say if who who is the more full uh, love-wise and emotionally. Um, Timothy, I have loved every second of this. Thank you. So All right, before we go, what are you guys binging right now? What, what, what are you and Melissa watching these days? Well, she just finished uh, Great, uh, which is the, the story of Catherine the Great. She just finished that. So we'll see what the next one is. I'm going to want to go back to I love the the BBC cop shows because they don't carry guns. And I'm on the Eastern Council of the Directors Guild of America. And this came up in one of our meetings as it should it be something that we should uh, uh, how do we address gun violence? And, you know, I said I'm binging and they all knew everybody in the room was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Luther with Edris Alba. Yeah, I love Luther. So, mm -hmm. Those shows, they don't, those detectives, Is that they don't true? carry. I never even realized that. Yeah. Cops, the detectives over there don't carry guns. Uh, and they go into harrowing situations. So what would, how could we best answer to that was the conversation. And no answer came out of it. And do we couple with the Writers Guild? And do we try to find a way of writing more to that? And I love a whodunit. I always have. And I really love the BBC. So I think we're going to go towards Grace over there or it's one of the other shows, but she doesn't like, uh, she loves them once she starts them, but she, she probably, you know, you and do a we, little arm twisting. I well, do have to do a little arm twisting. Then she's in. Okay. For somebody who, who did sports has, have you watched Ted Lasso? Do you watch Ted Lasso? I loved it. I love Ted Lasso. I, I can't even. I have yeah. 20 minutes left to this week's episode. I can't even tell you how much I love that show. I can't yeah. even. We have it. There's again service. What's at the core of that? It's service. He wants a better experience for all those guys. And where he gets in trouble is when he wants stuff uh, versus when he's given stuff. You know, we can't. I don't watch anything on their schedule because we love each other so much that there's most shows we can't watch without each other. Uh, so we, we do the I, same thing. 
I can't, I can't that. No, no, no. You can't watch that. I let her watch great. The final season. I watched it in the background because I didn't see the first two, but we're very much into watching together. So Ted Lasso is like, we need that, that we're going to wait till we can get them all. Uh, and then we're going to binge them. Ooh, and oof, God, what a, what a great binge it is. And speaking of great writing, um, back to the prairie back there, uh, Missy. So, uh, you know, I, I had a, a, uh, a literary salon in, in LA called Women Who Write. And uh, I would have been inviting you to the hey. living room to read that Allison uh, was a part of. But anyway, um, I'm coming for you, Melissa. And um, Timothy, hey. thank you so much. Right. right. Hey, writer, you. Wife, writer. Hey, she's talking about writer. your book. She's writing. She's writing uh, what she's going to say at this wedding. Um, she's Vicky saying that she read your, your book and she's going to get you on and back to the prairie. Yeah. Uh, and she can't wait to have you back. Yes, 100%. That'll be so fun. Excellent. And good luck I'm at the excited. wedding tomorrow and have have a wonderful time. And thank you so much, Timothy. You you exceeded oh. all, all very high expectations, which is nice. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you. And love to Snuffy and I love you. And I love listening to you. And I, I love uh, uh, Tommy Chong. I like that. It was really <laughs> fun. Have a wonderful time in Florida. Take okay, care. thank Bye -bye. you.